Hey there, Hit Like a Girl Pod listeners. We've got some exciting news that's too good to keep to ourselves. You all know Grace Minton, whose stories have captivated us over the past couple years. Well, Grace has been doing such an amazing job with her show, High Tea with Grace, that it's time for her to shine even brighter. Yes, you heard that right. High Tea with Grace has graduated to its own show with its own brand new RSS feed. While we've loved sharing Grace's episodes as special bonuses on the Hit Like a Girl pod, it's now time to give Grace the spotlight she deserves. So what does that mean for you? To continue enjoying the compelling stories and insights from Grace, head over to your favorite podcast platform and hit that subscribe button for High Tea with Grace. Trust us, you don't want to miss out on what she has in store. Her latest series is dedicated to understanding the VC funding world, aka Fund Like a Girl. Thank you for supporting us, and let's show some love for Grace on her exciting new journey. Remember, search for High Tea with Grace and subscribe today. Hit Like a Girl podcast is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. One thing I love about working with them is that they're mission-driven, which means that they're dedicated to featuring authoritative shows, hosts, and guests who take on the tough topics in healthcare with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. If you're looking for bingeable content related to the healthcare industry, they've got more than 8,000 episodes on demand waiting for you. From professional development, the patient voice, digital health, innovation and entrepreneurship, and of course, health IT, they've got you covered. So this is your official invitation to check them out at healthpodcastnetwork.com. And welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios, and today my guest is Emily Tyson. Emily is the Chief Transformation Officer for Relationed, which recently went through a merger with Radix Health. Together, the two organizations are helping to create stronger digital front doors to improve scheduling, provider communication, and overall patient engagement. It was really fun talking with Emily. I think you're really going to enjoy it. So let's get to it. Emily Tyson, thank you for joining us today. Can you please share with us a little bit about your piece of the health IT puzzle or where you live in the healthcare ecosystem? Sure. So, you know, when I think about healthcare, everyone that works in this industry has a why. For me, it's about fixing the back end, more administrative side of healthcare. I never wanted to be a doctor or a nurse or caregiver. They're very noble professions. I'm certainly thankful we have them, but it's not me. What really fascinates and frustrates me about the healthcare industry is how chaotic and complex and quite frankly, conflicting the different systems and processes and incentives really are. It's like having a trillion piece puzzle to put together, but the pieces don't actually fit. So my goal for me in my career is to find areas within our healthcare system where we can start to untangle the mess and simplify the system. And what I'm doing currently is leading the integration of Relation and Radix Health, where together we're working to make it easier for patients to see their providers. It's a really critical piece of the access and engagement puzzle that from a technology perspective really centers around scheduling and communication tools. So can you break that down for us a little bit? Like what did both companies, like what are they both really good at? 
you know, when you hear about scheduling and patient access, you hear a lot of conversations around the digital front door in many ways. Radix historically is really good at scheduling, and I'll talk more about what that means. And Relation is really good at communication and patient engagement. And you really need those two pieces to go hand in hand to drive results. As you look at companies who sit in this space, many companies are applying a digital layer on top of existing infrastructure and processes to deliver a more modern, a more friendly consumer experience, really trying to meet patients and meet consumers where they are. And that's certainly part of our goal. Uh, what we found is you can't really do that if you don't dig into the underlying operational issues that are actually impeding access, that are actually making it hard to connect with patients along the journey. And so what we do is work with our clients to really understand what are their goals? How do they operate today? What workflows do they have? And how can you help streamline that in a way that you can leverage technology for better results and better scale? It translates into a series of products. So for example, there is online scheduling, which people typically see. Shocking that in healthcare, most online scheduling is really at a request for an appointment still. What we do is enable real-time booking for appointments and really try to balance what the patient wants, what the consumer wants in their experience with what providers need. Most people don't just put their calendars up for full availability. There are rules that govern it. How do you make sure the patient gets to the right provider at the right time for the right appointment? Do they have the insurance? And all of the, you know, unfortunately required operational complexity on the back end. So really trying to find where those areas intersect and how we can simplify that. There's a product where the internal, think of it as a call center or front desk staff member is using to schedule a patient. Rather than combing through all the specific calendar slots, we apply automated rules and AI to drive intelligent recommendations for which appointment slots, which providers, which locations are most appropriate for that patient. So really trying to simplify what today is a complex book of notes and post-its and rules that are really hard to govern and have insight into. And then around that, there's a communication layer. And you think about it, appointment reminders are you know, pretty well known. Where those become really interesting is where you actually connect it back into scheduling. And with a click of a button, you can send a reminder. You can have the patient confirm or reschedule. They can reschedule easily. They don't have to make a phone call. There's not a lot of back and forth. They can actually just go online and do that simply without starting over. Behaviors like that start to streamline the experience. It reduces the overhead on the practice. And it also means patients are more likely to get the care they need, less likely to no-show at the last minute and other complications in that process. So the thing that reminds me of is kind of like using Calendly, like within a team, right? That you're like, it's somewhat automated and you can go on the back end and you can say, okay, do you want to remind somebody about this appointment, you know, 24 hours or say thank you afterwards or whatever. But I imagine it's a lot more complicated than what we just use, you know, for business purposes, especially when you're talking about large organizations and, you know, the type of specialists and how many providers there are. So how technical and crazy does it actually get on that back end? It's true. And I think about just the rules I put in place to open up parts of my calendar. And what we're asking is for providers and practices to fully open the calendar. We want to be able to have all available inventory so you can really optimize access to the slots. So how you find the balance where you can do that without taking away their ability to control and just see the right patients is really hard. It is 
as challenging or more challenging operational question as it is technology question, which is the case in many aspects of healthcare. When you look at it, it's not really technology that's the barrier. It might be a policy or something else that's in place. In this case, as you do layer on, you've got individual provider preferences. Some of them are rules. You know, am I clinically certified to see this patient? Some of them are do I specialize in it? Does the patient want to see a specialist? How do you even define specialist? That can vary. Do Am I a fellow? Do I have to be? What are my practices rules around that? How many new patients can I see in a day? How many do I have to see in a day? Which location do I work at? Which days of the week? All of those. So for an individual provider, it's complicated. And then you start taking 10 50, 1,000, 5,000 providers across an organization, across locations, and it becomes exponentially more complex really quickly. You don't have to get to 1,000 providers before it's hard. Five or 10 providers, and suddenly the myriad of different kind of questions to be answered to direct the patient to the right provider becomes very long. And so what we do is essentially create a rules engine, rules engine that drives it to understand what are what are hard and fast rules of, you know, if I am an orthopedic surgeon, I cannot see a cardiac patient. That's a really easy one. That is a hard and fast rule that you can start to create these decision trees around it. Others may be preferences. I would rather not see more than two new patients back to back because I know those take a longer period of time and it starts to throw off how you know my schedule for the day. And so then you can create what's a hard rule versus a preference, or even you can apply it to technology to say, hey, no more than 10 new patients in a day, because I know that is as many as I can handle sort of easily to ensure everything is on time, which is a big part of also the patient experience. But if 48 hours prior to that day, I'm at less than 70% utilization. So I've got a good number of open slots. Open it up, take care of that role. And then I can get a lot more last patient, last minute patients in the door to see them that may have been blocked. So the technology allows you to be really flexible with the rules you have in place. Uh, whereas today, you're relying on people and paper typically to apply it. And so not only do they often get applied incorrectly, you don't have the flexibility to change the rules under defined circumstances. I'm always curious about like, what's the onboarding process for that? Do you basically have a form for each clinician that you're just like, okay, fill this out for your preferences for the stuff that's, that's going to be, you know, not the hard rules, but the preference aspect of it? We do. So where we start with is, you know, kind of by specialty, because it very it is there are certain rules that are practice wide. And so we think of there's a starting point. There is a data collection element, no doubt. And I spend a lot of time trying to think, how do you make that more and more just simple and uh, shorter, really? But you think about what are the practice level rules? What are location level rules? You know, a certain location may not have an ultrasound machine, so you can't schedule those appointments there, things like that. So we put those in place first. What are the broad reaching uh, rules that can be applied across the board? And then you start to say practice level. And what we do is by specialty have defined best practice around what are the appointment types? How do they map? What does that mean for length of an appointment in certain pieces? And then we can go in and by provider, there can be the other, what we typically will call preferences. It might be, you know, do you see pediatric patients or not? And work to make that as structured as is possible all the way through. And that's evolved a lot. When we started, it was free form, any rule, any preference, it could be created. And we found it's not very valuable. It's much more valuable to have it structured so you can start to get the data to understand the impact of the rules and make changes and make them applied, not just to one provider, but to all providers. 
I love that. And then, so can we talk about the communication side of it? So if, if we understanding the scheduling, like, okay, that's definitely a big job and it sounds like you guys have it pretty dialed in, but then communicating, is it just communicating from the clinic to the patient or is there interlocation communication or I don't know, tell me about. Okay. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny because communication is one of those things that I always thought, well, that seems pretty easy. It's just some text messages, you know, and it's really not at all. It's really complicated. We focus more on the provider organization, I will say, not so the individual doctor, but provider organization to patient communication and typically around, you know, what do you need to know prior to your appointment? What do you need to know to be able to check in? Can you check in remotely? You know, so things like getting directions, rescheduling your appointment, reminders, follow-up surveys, on how was your experience or patient reported outcome surveys, that sort of thing. Uh, The same thing is we can start with, here's best practice. Here's what we've seen be most effective in how to engage the patient on the journey. Often that does mean working with clients, with providers on how do you optimize the other workflows you have around it. You know, how is your phone tree set up? How does that relate to messages that are going out automatically or based on certain triggers? It can become complex really quickly. A lot of where we're able to add value is to show where you're not getting any return, where the patient experience is worse, and you're actually creating overhead without value for the practice with the additional complexity. So start to separate where standardization and simplification can actually drive the same results and take some of the headaches out of it. So that's part of where we set up these journeys to drive value and you can do kind of A-B testing on what does get better results there. Well then, okay, what about the results of all of those communications? Because you had said patient reported outcomes and also satisfaction surveys. Does that then get tied in to quality reporting and information that actually might get submitted to the government or to other, like through other attestations for payers? It can. We directly haven't, we provide a lot of the data and analytics. We're not doing any, you know, payer reporting on behalf of the clients, for example. But if you look at no-show rates, access to care. So one of the metrics we spend a lot of time focused on is and it leverages scheduling and the communication piece is their next available, which is essentially a metric that's meant to represent what is a patient's ability to access care at your facility and how do you drive those numbers down. And so we do provide the data and some of the different metrics and analytics to be able to look at those results. So you're bringing up like the access of care. When you say that, what exactly, like I feel like that's a little bit vague. What is it that when we're saying when we're saying uh, the patient's ability to access care? Is it very simply like just finding the practice and its availability or is it something bigger than that? I would say access to care is a huge holder. There's a lot of pieces of it, right? You've got, there is the actual access, getting finding a provider, getting an appointment. There's the cost of it. There's transportation. You know, there... There's a lot of elements of it. What we're focused on very specifically is that tactical, I think, kind of front piece of can you find a provider that you need and can you get an appointment? Do you have the information you need to be able to get there? It's eye-opening to me to see how many patients no-show because they actually can't find the facility they're looking for. Transportation starts to come in. We've enabled things like, hey, when you book your appointment, you can book a ride on public transportation or we'll give you, here's Google Maps and so you can easily see that there's bus, you know, things like that. And so starting to touch some of these other areas, but it's really around getting the appointment that you need. It takes on average almost three weeks to get an appointment in the U.S. with a specialty provider. We are focused on driving that down to less than seven days. Okay. 
you start to see at that point patients switch providers or they simply don't get the follow-up care that they need often. And there is plenty of availability within schedules. It's purely this mismatch between kind of the supply and demand and the information there. I mean, I really like the idea of being able to to share their opportunities like here, here's a way to get a ride, right? Like I'd never heard of that being provided through a technology before. That's really cool. Yeah. And it's as simple as we know that's not the core part of access that we're solving. I mean, the cost of transportation is a huge challenge, but we do book appointment online when you get your confirmation, it will all say, here are the directions, here are your patient visit instructions, here are links to you know Uber, Lyft, others to say, do you want to book a ride now? Do you want to pre-schedule these things? I love that. That's really smart. Anything just to make it easier, honestly. Yeah. No, that's a great idea. Okay, so thank you for all of that information. Now I want to know a little bit more about you, if you don't mind. What did you want to be when you were 10 years old? Did you think that you would have the job that you currently have? Oh gosh, I think I wanted to be a hairdresser when I was 10. (laughs) I've changed course a few times. I did not know. I was early on sort of, you know, the business side of things. You know, my mother jokes that, my sister would line up all of our toys and teach them as teachers set them up as little students. And I was always planning the next yard sale or garage sale. And I was yeah. paying prices on things. And so <laughs> there was always an element of kind of business from that side of it, but healthcare and what that would look like didn't come into play until much later. I started my career in banking, uh, doing leverage finance and fell into working in healthcare simply because I sat next to the person who ran the desk that did healthcare deals and then continued to do that for a while. I moved actually to Hong Kong for a couple of years, wanting just to to be on the emerging market side of banking at that point in time. And that's when I realized that what was really interesting to me wasn't actually the financial transactions. It was the companies that we were working to help fund for their growth and other pieces there. And so came back to the US to get more of a direct involvement went to work for Athena coming out of business school, which was sort of the first piece where the dots connected of why am I really drawn to healthcare and coming back again to this idea of how broken the back end is and really wanting to, you know, my OCD says I want to make that cleaner. I want it more streamlined. Well, did you see anything like, I guess on the finance or banking side of things on how like, you know, a well oiled machine it is and then being able to compare it to healthcare seeing some of the comparison and just feeling like oh yeah we can clearly do better was that part of it or no I think part of it for me is it clicks on the idea of incentives and people don't like to talk about incentives in healthcare it drives human nature it drives everything financial it drives everything Mm -hmm. and they're so conflicting throughout healthcare that what fascinates me there and became obvious is the problem statements are very obvious the solutions are not at all within healthcare. And so being part of figuring that out and trying to apply kind of the critical thinking and how do you get creative or how do you start to make incremental change to drive towards a much broader change became something I was passionate about. But I think the idea of why doesn't it work in healthcare became this kind of question that I couldn't let go of for a while. Now, I'm curious, just because not everybody has the experience of working abroad, like how did you, what was it like working in Hong Kong? And like, what what were some of the takeaways? How much time were you there? What was like your takeaways? Yeah, I was there just under three years. And, you know, I loved it. It was an incredible experience. I was still working in banking at the time. And it was during the uh, 08 
09 crisis that was hitting. Uh, we were in a little bit of a bubble. We didn't feel it quite the same way, or at least pretended we didn't feel it quite the same way. What was eye-opening for me in that is, you know, one, kind of gaining an appreciation for and also an ability to work with very different experiences and background and perspectives and the value that can bring. It is also hard. You know, it's very hard to sort through all of that, but sort of being able to recognize the value of having the diverse experience and perspectives and finding a way to build a connection with people or companies where it's not immediately apparent is sort of a something I've taken with me over time, for sure. Well, I feel like that's just a huge lesson in general of like how to incorporate different viewpoints and cultures and just backgrounds in general into like, all right, how, like let's make it work. Is there any advice you would have? Like, any, like because honestly, that's a good, that's a really solid life lesson. <laughs> yeah, I think and it's funny because you it's it pops up in non-obvious places. So I've done a lot of acquisitions and post-acquisition integration, and we're going through a merger right now. And that's where you see, you know, relative to, oh, I'm from the US and I'm living in Hong Kong, and there's obvious differences. Even combining companies, you, there are massive differences. There are cultures, there's process, there's everything that's there. And part of what I found is it's listening. And it's being patient, but it's also being willing to call it out, have the conversation of, and not that it's not personal. Many of these things are very personal, but if you can find a way to have a conversation about the differences or where you feel like there is friction and you don't know what it is, you're actually not going to solve it. You're not going to figure out a way forward. So yeah, the patient's respect, but also making sure you actually acknowledge. The Calling difference. it out. I do like the idea of being able to say, hey, it's an, isn't it interesting you do that your way and I do it this way? Like, what are the pros and cons? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, what yeah, do you what think are, about it? What not, you know? And people skip over the why a lot. And that's yeah. in any situation. But you'll find people can also be really objective and have points of view if you just sort of probe a bit and look for, you know, operate on the assumption, hey, I bet there is a good reason or a reason. Yeah. Um, and let me understand that first. Well, speaking of kind of like joining companies, how has it been culturally for Radix and Relation to come together? You know, it's funny for Radix and Relation, the cultures are actually very similar. So I've been through acquisition in the past where you have very different business models or or we, uh, one that I did most recently when I was combining uh, CureSpan and Navahelp and working with the teams there is you know, it was really a product SaaS career technology company being integrated into a uh, services, was traditionally a services organization. And there are massive differences across the board and very different ways to think about bringing them together. For Radix and Relation, we even lined up our official core values and we each had four and three of the four were the same. Which, you know, it sounds kind of cheesy. It sounds, it doesn't sound real, but it was true. And it was a sort of pleasant surprise as we were going through the transaction process to say, hey, I actually think this makes sense. And hey, we're starting from a really shared foundation to build. Doesn't mean combining companies is easy, but we have more of a shared experience and shared value set than many as you look across just bringing pieces together. So did you end up taking... Okay, so you have three of the same. I'd like to know what those are. But with the ones that are different, did you just end up saying, okay, we have five now? Or did you... No, so we are actually going through an exercise to redefine or refresh the core values where we've got a team 
of people. It's about 12, 15 people in the company who have said, hey, this is our starting point. Let's talk about, hey, what works? Do we hold true to these? Where do these actually, you know, you can over-rotate on a core value. And as we come together, what makes sense? So we are going to exercise now and are actually planning to finalize that over the next week or two. But it's a lot around, you know, the value that customers play in our organization, the communication and honest communication, kind of respecting your team and your clients enough to give them news, even if it's hard news, like share feedback. I love that. You know, value the opinion. It's things like that, that I think both organizations do really well. I've really come to that place in my life that I would so much rather somebody tell me the truth, even and almost especially if they know I'm not going to like it. Like yeah. I would rather be trusted to know that I'm capable enough to to manage it or handle bad news than be like, oh, let's just keep it from her as if like it's a protection of something. Exactly. It never gets better. And that's the thing I found, whether it's one-on-one feedback or whether it's an organizational situation. So an easy example is if, you know, a client requests a product enhancement, it doesn't go well to just say maybe and maybe and maybe. And if we know, if we know we will do it, but we can't do it for some time, that's fine. That's an answer. If we know we will not do it for whatever reason, that is a really hard conversation, but I have found it is a much more effective conversation to just be upfront and say what it is and why and better understand the problem and kind of move forward from there. It is not easy. It is a lot easier to avoid those conversations. And so we really push you know, ourselves and our teams to constantly be transparent about what's going on, what our challenges are, what our wins are, all of those pieces. Well, I would like to ask you kind of one last question just around advice in general. So if, if you knew that there was maybe a 15 or 16-year-old following in your footsteps, what do you think she would need to know in order to be successful in your career, this, a similar career path? One piece of advice that's really been top of mind for me lately is yell louder. So about 10 years ago, someone said this to me. And at the time I was frustrated by it because I thought, well, I shouldn't have to yell. You should listen when I talk. You know, What that has turned into for me is the idea of making sure you're heard before you move on. So early in my career, I would assume people knew what I knew, that they had the data that I had, or they had thought about it from that angle. And it's not about expertise. It's just people think about things differently and they don't always have the same information. So either I would assume they had it already or I would raise it as a, you know, a question one time, maybe an opinion, you know, one time, and then they'd say no, or that's fine, or it's not a problem and continue on. And what I didn't appreciate is how quickly people are moving, how many things are flying around and how it's very easy to not actually hear what people around you are telling you when you're in their leadership position. And so what that has turned into for me is making sure I'm heard. It doesn't mean I'm always right. It doesn't mean the decision is always the decision I want, but making sure whether it's you know, physical volume or more likely finding the right stakeholders, the right constituents, the right forum to have a conversation about what's top of mind before letting it go. And then whatever the decision, whatever the path, whatever the next step may be, I can get on board with, but too many people move on and assume that their leadership team or their peers actually know and have heard them when it hasn't at all been certainly maybe not heard and certainly not digested enough to really have an opinion on it. I really like that advice. That's really smart. And there's a couple, I don't know if it applies or not to the same degree, but there's one thing that I've 
it, well, I experienced in a, a particular acquisition where I felt like, hey, there was a whole team of people that had been working on solving a particular problem for the last four years. And when the new team came on, like they never asked them what they learned. <laughs> it's a stereotype and yet it happens every day. It really does. And it's hard. And typically a team, especially if you've been acquired, is don't want to be perceived as difficult, don't want to raise questions. And so it's finding the right forum. It's pick your battles, right? What are the things that are matter? Where do I need to be heard? And how do I keep finding a new path to making sure I'm heard when it matters? But yeah, it happens a lot. And it's not, I have found it's not ill-intentioned. It's not personal. It is just people are moving and they're moving really quickly. And so some of it is on you as an individual to find that path to have that voice. I really appreciate that. So Emily, thank you very much for spending time with me today. If people want to follow you or your journey or get in touch with your organization, what would be the best way for them to do that? Yes. So I am on LinkedIn, just Emily Tyson. I believe I still have Radix on Radix Health on my profile, um, but Radix or Relation. And we'll be merging our brand externally a little bit later this year. So will it have a new name altogether? It won't be either one or will it be something brand new? Well, that remains to be seen. Okay. (laughs) Well, good luck with the transition. It sounds like you guys are doing a pretty good job. (laughs) Thank you. I I really enjoyed it. I appreciate you inviting me to join you today. Yeah, my pleasure. We'll talk soon. All right. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. This episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird, Inc. CMS's Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, is super complex. And if clinicians ignore the program or perform poorly in it, it can result in a hit to their revenue and reputation. Chirpy Bird is proud to say that more than 95% of its clients are exceptional performers in MIPS, meaning they've maximized the score that directly translates into their Medicare reimbursement rate. Chirpy Bird offers their audit-proof services to practices of all sizes through an affordable monthly subscription that includes unlimited access to a regulatory expert who guides them in knowing what data to track, how to create workflows that make capturing that data easier, and ensures that they submit it all to CMS on time and performing at its best. Contact Chirpy Bird today or learn more at chirpybirdinc.com. That's chirpybirdinc.com.